0: Welcome to this week's podcast, at Bergen Park Church, from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. Hey, if you want to uh, grab a Bible, and even if you don't want to, but uh, I'd ask you to, you can either turn it on or you can grab it. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 3. And I want to prepare you a little bit for where we're headed. We're in this series... um, Discovering kind of your identity and calling. And I would say today's message that I'm gonna walk through is probably one of the most missed in the church. And the path we're gonna go on today is the contemplative life. The evangelical church has great teaching. Some of the greatest teachers come out of the evangelical church. But also some of the most emotionally unhealthy people come out of the evangelical church. We have great head knowledge, but sometimes it doesn't sink into heart knowledge. And so today we're gonna be looking at what Jesus says about a health that goes deeper than the mind but goes down to the heart so that your heart and your mind are on the same page. And it's called the self-aware life, living out of your true self. Now, this isn't something that's new. I want you to know this theme goes all the way back to the first century and to the early church. So a few quotes. Fourth century, Augustine. Augustine said, how can you draw close to God when you're far from your own self? Then he prayed this famous prayer. And this is a prayer you could take home with you today. Grant, Lord, that I may know myself. Hear these words. Grant, Lord, that I may know myself, that I may know Thee. In knowing yourself, there's an opportunity to have a deeper experience of God. And on the Protestant side, we got John Calvin in the Institutes, and he said it this way. Without knowledge of self, listen how strong that is, there is no knowledge of God. Our wisdom consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourself, but these two are always connected by many ties. It's not easy to determine which of the two proceeds and gives birth to the other. You cannot have knowledge of God unless you have knowledge of yourself. And then the book that a lot of this is based on is a book by a guy named David Benner, I'd encourage you to read it, called The Gift of Being Yourself. And this is what he says. Christian spirituality has a great deal to do with the self and not just with God. Because the goal of the spiritual journey is the transformation of the self. This requires both knowing ourself and God. Both are necessary if we are to discover our true identity as those who are in Christ. Because the self is where we meet God. And both are also necessary if we are to live out of the uniqueness of our own vocation. So, disciples of Jesus for centuries have said if you do not know yourself well, how can you encounter God? And last week, we talked about what it means to be in Christ. That's Paul's favorite phrase for your identity, is that your identity is in Christ. And the idea is what is true of Jesus when you're in Christ becomes true of you. That you take on, in a sense, Jesus' relationship to the Father. So his life, I don't know if you know this, he lived a perfect one, so did you. The Father sees you through the perfect life of Jesus. Jesus died for our sins, which means sin has no hold on you. That power is gone because Jesus' death is your death. Jesus' resurrection to new life is your resurrection. Jesus' ascension to power and authority at the right hand of the Father is your place of authority and power. What is true of Jesus in Christ is also true of you. And that's what it means to be in Christ. Now, today what we're going to do is we're going to move from your identity to focus on your calling. And we're going to discover there's two types of callings. First, Jesus calls us to be with him. When he said to his disciples, hey, come, follow me. Which means before you do anything, guys, just hang out with me a little bit. I want to influence you. I want my life to be picked up in your life. So come and be with me. That's the inward calling. And the second calling is the calling of vocation, how we live that out in the world. Now, today, what we're going to focus on is that first aspect of calling, which is that inward calling to communion or union with God. And this is where Ephesians chapter 3 comes in. So if you guys are ready, you guys ready? I'm ready. I've been doing this all week, so I I need to get this done. Ephesians (laughs) Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. Let's jump in. Ephesians 3.14, for this reason, I bow my knee before the Father, for whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, now being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth? And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is the word of the Lord. All thanks be to God. Hey, let me pray for us. Fathers, we take a deep breath, acknowledge that you're here. We're here on Sunday. We set this time aside to meet with you and meet with each other. Would you have your way among us? Teach us. Guide us in Jesus' name, amen. April 14th, 1912. April 14th, 1912, on its maiden voyage from Southampton to New York City, the Titanic hit an iceberg in the North Atlantic Sea. And we know tragically in that accident, 1,500 people died, including Jack, Though I'm still convinced, Rose, listen, there was enough room for Jack. Come on. They could have worked something out. But it was a tragic accident. It was a tragic accident because they could not see what was below the surface. They saw what was above the surface. But they could not see the danger that would sabotage this ship because of something that was much, much larger that was looming beneath the surface. And I think biblically, that's the same thing that's true for us. That often, in our culture, we are encouraged to live above the surface, to live in our possessions, to live in our success, to live in our pleasures, to live in our life above the surface. But see, what Paul's praying about in Ephesians 3 is that picture of going beneath the surface to what's actually motivating and directing your life. Now in his book, The Emotionally Healthy Church, Pete Scazzaro says this. He says human beings are like icebergs. 10% is above the surface, invisible, but 90% is below the surface and is invisible. And I would suggest to you more than just addressing your behaviors, Jesus is concerned about addressing your heart. And when I say your heart, I'm talking about your feelings, your desires, your longings, your hopes, your dreams, your visions, your goals, all of that is wrapped up. And the things that are directing your life are often not just assigned to your behavior, they're assigned to the way you're thinking, the way you're acting, the attitudes that you bring. God is interested in addressing the core issues of the heart. So I'm going to remind you of a couple things. You'll put that first image up of identity. Identity focuses on who you are in Christ, but it also focuses on who you're becoming. And see, your identity influences the way you see yourself, the way you see God, and the way you see others. Now, look at this next slide. Here's the direction we want to go. Sin is not the way that things are supposed to be. Can we agree? Sin separates Sin wounds, sin tears, sin twists. A lot of those are the Hebrew words that God uses to describe sin. And because sin is not the way it's supposed to be, what sin does is it wounds the soul. Now, I don't know if you realize this, when somebody sins against you, there is a debt, there is a wound that occurs. Now, if that person doesn't go back to you and address it and heal it, what happens? Does it just disappear? It's still there. Now, some sins are surface, and hey, it didn't bother me that much, but we know there are things that people have done to us. But listen, there's also stuff that we have done that has kind of impacted down into our identity, and now we see ourselves based on what somebody's done to me or what I've done to somebody else. And I don't know if you realize this, but the word salvation in the Greek, it means to heal. And part of what God is doing in this life, in this walk with him, is he's healing us. Now listen, how can he heal something unless you're willing to address it? How can God heal something unless you're willing to look at it and say, yep, I got an issue? And see, that's where Paul's taking us in Ephesians chapter 3. He's taking us below the surface and causing us to look within. And so let's jump back into that passage and kind of see where Paul's going to take us. So watch this. And the first question I want to ask as we look at this is what is Paul praying for? and you'll see it in verse 16. So if you look back at verse 16, Paul's praying for something very specific and the location is specific. He says that according to the riches of God's glory, he may grant you to be strengthened, now notice with power, through the spirit, in your inner being. Which means you have an inner being. Now in verse 17 you find out that inner being means the heart. And so your inner being and your heart are the same thing. As you have an outer being, as you behave, you also have an inner being. That's filled with your emotions and desires and focus and thoughts. And what he's saying is that God has to touch you with power in your inner being, meaning God has to meet you there. See, the heart in Hebrew and in Greek is not the seat of your emotions. We think of it that way. Valentine's Day is coming up, right? Guys, get ready. It's coming up. And the heart is not simply about your emotional state. The heart, in Greek and Hebrew, it's the idea of who you are. Today, we may say it's your mind, I don't know, or it's your ego. But your heart is the totality of your identity. And what Paul's saying is, God's gotta get down there and meet you, and meet you for where you are. The person that you are needs to encounter God. And he's gonna give us four reasons why this is important. And here's the first reason, it's in verse 17. He says, I pray that God would show up with power in your inner being, verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. Now, I want you to understand what Paul's praying for is stuff you already got. Because you were in Christ, these things are already true about you, but you're not experiencing them. I don't know if that makes sense to you. You have things that are true about you in Christ, but they're not moving you. They're not changing you, they're not directing you. So for example, like in Galatians four, in Galatians four, it says when the time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman, that's me, born under law, I can't move, I'm gonna have to stay right here. Born under law to redeem those under law, that he might give us the full rights of sons. But because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts the spirit that calls out Abba, Father. So we are no longer slaves but sons, and since we are sons, God has made us also heirs. Jesus came to adopt us as sons and daughters. The Holy Spirit came that we might experience what it means to be a son or a daughter. That's what Paul's praying for. He's saying, guys, you already got this stuff, but listen, you you have to pray that God would work it down and you would encounter the real God would begin to encounter the real you. So the first thing that he says in verse 17 is he's praying that we would live out of our communion with God. That your confidence in life would come out of the fact that you are regularly meeting with God, that you know God and that God knows you. And he's praying that reality would become true of you and he's praying the power of the spirit would kinda come in and God would become alive to your heart. Now the second thing he prays, we see it in verse 17 again, He's praying that you'd be strengthened through the power of the Spirit in your inner being so that, notice, here's the second one, you'd be rooted and grounded in love. Because see, as you go through life, you're gonna have a lot of experiences that say, I am not rooted and grounded in love. I am rooted and grounded in chaos and in a world of hurt and pain, and as you go out in the world and you live above the surface, that's kind of what life is. I mean, when people tell me, you know, I look at the world and I just know that God is love, like, what world are you looking at? I, I, I see a very dangerous world, dog eat dog kind of world where the strong overcome the weak. I don't find myself rooted in love. And he's praying that the power of the Spirit might come alive, that your identity, meaning regardless of what you've done or someone's done to you, your identity would be firmly established in the love of God. You already have this, but you're not living out of it. So, two ideas so far. Here's the third one. We see it in verse 18. And I pray that you may be strengthened, verse 18, to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, length, height, and depth. Now notice, he doesn't tell you what he's talking about. He just kind of lists. I pray that you would know the breadth, depth, height, length of what? Of God's love. That he not only wants your identity rooted in his love, What he wants to do is to unpack how great it is. First John three, how great is the love? How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God? How much do you linger on the greatness of God's love? You probably linger a lot on the greatness of the problems we have. Greatness of the problems in our country, in our house, in our homes, in our business, But how much do we spend praying that the Holy Spirit would awaken us to the greatness of God's love through Jesus Christ? He's saying, you gotta pray that in. It's not gonna happen unless you're willing to live in that interior life. And then finally, verse 19. He says, I pray that you would be strengthened, verse 19, that you would know, and I love how these two no's are in here. Notice this, that you would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And that you would be filled to all the fullness of God. The big picture is I want you filled with the fullness of God. What does that mean? You need to know beyond knowing. Do you know what that means? I know the Grand Canyon is amazing. You guys have told me about it. Some of you have been there. Some of you have hiked it. I know guys that have hiked that thing. Gone down to the bottom, camped at the bottom. That may be you. Came back out. That's amazing. But I've never seen it. And so if I've never actually been there, would you say that I know what it's like to be at the Grand Canyon? Listen, I watched the documentary, you know, National Geographic. I've seen it. I've seen pictures. Why do I need to go? Because there's a knowledge that's deeper than knowledge. It's called experience. And when he says, I want you to know beyond knowledge, I want you to encounter it. I want you to experience it. I want you to rest in it. I want the reality of God's love to be something that is a driving force, just like your fear may be driving you. Your insecurity may be driving you. Do you know what that means? Because that drives us, doesn't it? Sometimes it drives us to compete, to accomplish. I want in the same way the love of God to come in and to begin to drive and direct and guide your life. What are we talking about? Chip Dodd in his book, The Voice of the Heart, he says this, he says the most difficult and significant journey we could ever take as human beings is 18 inches long from our head to our heart. But what's the problem? We have been taught how to live life on the surface. We live in a world that stays on the surface and within the church often we're not really taught what it means to go beneath the surface. We're taught to lead, lead this kind of surface, life. how are you doing? How's it going? Just loving the Lord, brother. You know, living, li- living my best life now. You know, you know those phrases. You know that stuff affects us. Because life may be horrible. Like you're in a fight with your wife or your husband or things are going on and you're like, yeah, just living my best, just loving Jesus. You know how it'd be. That's how I live. And it's not true, right? But we are taught in our culture, you know, just be a man. Just be a woman. Just let the water go under the dam. Don't worry about it. You know what that is? It's like pushing a beach ball. Have you ever seen this? You tried it when you were a kid. Let's get it to the bottom, right? I want to get it down 10 feet. You get like six kids together, right? You're all trying to get it down. But what happens is the further it gets down, the hotter it comes up. And all the stuff in our life that you're pushing down, you're just fooling yourself. It's coming back up. It's coming out in agitation, anger, rage. All of that starts coming out of us because we're not addressing it. And so we need a way of addressing the stuff that's below the surface. And here's the problem. You have a major problem. that's called sin. And see, sin wounds the soul, and sin wounds the soul of others, and you have a heart that is very deceptive to yourself. Jeremiah says this. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Your own heart deceives yourself. I'm fine. I'm fine, right? I'm fine. Things are okay. And I don't know if you realize this. In the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus is doing so often, he's taking us beneath the surface. Go back and read the Sermon on the Mount. Hey, don't commit adultery. I'm not doing that. I've never found myself in another woman's bed. Yeah, but Jason, that's not enough. I'm not concerned about above the surface. I'm addressing the lust in your heart. Can we talk about what's driving you? Hey, don't kill people. I've never done that. But I care about the murder and the bitterness in your own heart. What's Jesus doing? You need a righteousness that's greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. And what that means is not a righteousness on the surface that looks good. It's a righteousness that allows God to address what's really going on, the 90% that we don't see. And we see this throughout Scripture. I mean, the Pharisees were deceived. Jesus constantly says, Don't be deceived, don't be deceived, don't be deceived. Then you get to great books like Romans. In Romans chapter 1, you have this huge list of Gentile sins, you know, uh, younger brother sins, getting drunk, homosexuality, sexual debauchery, orgies, drunkenness. You know, and all the Jewish people who are reading Romans in chapter 1, they're like, Go get them, God. Those people are ruining our life, they're ruining our country, they're ruining the world. And you know what Paul does, chapter two, verse one, is he starts to shift the focus from all these Gentile sinners that are ruining everything. And in Romans two, verse one, this is what he says. As God's spirit focuses on them. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on the other, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And you know what they're thinking? I'm not practicing sexual immorality. I'm not getting drunk, I'm not staying out. He goes, look at your heart. The same wickedness that's driving everybody else is still in you, just as self-righteous. You're just as angry, you're just as driven by your own desires, but you won't let God in. See, chapter one is the gospel of Gentile, chapter two is the gospel to the Jew, to the moral person. Our heart deceives us. And if we're not willing to admit things We can't address things. I love Mr. Rogers. He was a believer, Presbyterian. We can forgive him for that. But this is what he said. Fred Rogers said this. He said, anything mentionable is manageable. But if you can't mention it, you can't address it. And the stuff that's driving your life is the stuff you cannot mention. It's called a blind spot. And the people around you have been telling you about it. They see it, but we don't. And what would it look like to see it and then allow God, not in shame, not in self-hatred, to meet you there with grace and with healing? What would that look like? Because see, the Bible says the key thing that's keeping you from change is it's sin. It's your sin, it's the sin of others, but we need to define what what does sin look like? I like this book, The Relational Soul been reading over the last year and it defines sin this way based on Genesis 3. It says, sin, and this is by Richard Plass, he said, sin is a mistrustful state, a mistrustful state of being that moves us from communion to alienation by means of disobedience and pride. What is the core of sin? I can't trust God to direct my life because I know better. Where does that come from? It's Genesis 3. Adam and Eve look at God and say, God, I don't don't know if I can trust you. I don't know if I can surrender to you. I think I got a better idea of how to manage my life and I think I have a better idea of what is good and what is evil, so I'm gonna trust myself and in trusting myself what happens is shame, fear, and guilt enter the world. And suddenly when there is a lack of trust, there's no intimacy. You know this in close relationships, but when you don't trust somebody, It's really hard to be connected to that person. And where there is a lack of trust, what happens is separation is exactly what we see in the garden. Adam and Eve, when they do not trust God and walk with God, they become separated from God. And in that place of separation from God, shame, fear, guilt, it all comes into the story. So watch this, just quickly gonna jump into Genesis three and I want to kind of show you what happens to the human heart when God's presence is pulled away. And in Genesis chapter three, verse seven, first thing they notice when sin comes in, I'm naked. Now, earlier on in chapter two, it says they were naked and unashamed, meaning they had nothing to hide because see, God loved them. And because of the love of God, they loved each other. They didn't have anything to hide. But as soon as sin comes in for the first time, humans experience shame. Shame says you are not enough. And if people really knew you, they would reject you. And all of us have something right now that you would be deathly afraid to share, certainly to this room or to others. There are things in your life you're afraid to share because of shame. Because if you knew that, I don't know that you could accept me, and I don't know that you could love me. And when that comes into human relationships, those relationships do not survive. And Adam and Eve are not only separated from God, but what you start to see is a breakdown in their separation between each other. They feel ashamed. And trust is key to relationships. So watch this in verse eight. Watch what happens. And they heard a sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And notice what the man and woman did. They hid. Now notice, this is something that God did with them every day. God walked with Adam and Eve They communioned together. They were in fellowship. And suddenly, when sin comes in, I got to hide. I'm afraid. I'm not enough. I got to hide, and I've got to hide from God. Now, that's kind of foolish. It's like my kids when they played hide and seek, you know. It's like, why are you hiding in the same place every single time? I know where you are, but you still go, oh, right? And God's kind of like, oh. That's how I translate this. Because it says in verse 9, And the Lord God called to the man and said, Okay, where are you? I don't think that's geographical. I think it's relational. What's going on? Have you ever had that with somebody? Where are you? Hardest thing to admit is where you are. One of the scariest things to do in a relationship or in life is just admit, This is where I am. And because Adam's afraid, he hides. Shame, fear, he hides. And, and, and what he, he does here is he not only in shame pulls away from God, but he covers himself, right? He finds fig leaves. He finds something to hide his shame. He then hides from God. And then finally, verse 11, it says, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, she did it. <laughs> right? Hey, you gave her to me. Who's the idiot? I mean, let's be honest. This is not humble language. She did it. I came home. Dinner was prepared. What else do I do? God, if you were in my position, this is called justifying. Have you ever done that? Because what are they experiencing? It's called guilt. When the human heart experiences guilt, all these defenses go up. Because I gotta defend myself. I can't, be, I can't be broken, I can't be sinful, I gotta have it together. And he blames the woman and he also blames God. What do we see here? It's compensating. When sin comes into the world and it wounds us, we think we gotta go above the surface. I've got to live above the surface. I've got to cover, and a lot of us can cover with a lot of great things. Success is a great way to cover. Success is an excellent way in life. And, and in my life, one of the hardest things I had to do, and it's still difficult for me, is to admit that I have been hurt. I went through most of my life going, That didn't bother me. And you know what happened to that hurt? I mean, I fueled it in the right way, I became competitive. I'm going to be the best communicator. I'm going to memorize more scripture. I'm going to study harder. I'm going to know it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to have it together. And so when I go out in the world, I'm covering with fig leaves. I don't want you to know how hurt I am. I just want you to see how successful I am. And then you might love me. But you know what? Because of that, no one could do. Do you know what no one could do? No one could love me. Why? Because that's not real. Come on. You're not always gonna be successful. You're not always gonna have it together. And if people can't see you, and you know what intimacy means? Into me see. Isn't that great? Yeah, you've been wondering what that means. That's called redneck definition right there. (laughs) Into me see. I see you. And see, that is the deeper work that God wants to do in your life. How do we deal with this? We gotta go back to Ephesians 3. Are you willing to walk with God? That means, church, you've got to be in Scripture. You've got to have God's words to speak into your life. You've got to learn to be in prayer, all the spiritual disciplines. You've got to learn kind of the contemplative life that at the end of the day, sometimes you need to ask that question, God, you know, where did I see your love today? Where did I encounter you today? How did you try to get my attention today? And at the end of the day, just simply to reflect, you know, that's, that's what the Jewish people did for centuries. It's all in the Psalms. You'll have daytime prayers and nighttime prayers, prayers of reflection, prayers of confession. And we have to l- learn how to walk with God in communion throughout life. Instead of trying to hide, instead of trying to pretend, we have to allow God to address the issues below the surface, and it is, it is a frightening thing at times. But God in his grace, and God in his mercy, as he addresses those things, he brings out a greater and fuller life, a life that is rich and a life that is free. This is the life that God invites us into if we're willing to be with him. Hey, I don't know where that impacts you, but we're gonna spend a few moments in reflection. And we do that by sharing communion together. If you didn't grab the elements when you came in, I want to encourage you to do so. Those elements are available in the back. They're also available up front, And what we wanna do in this time, it's really a time to reflect. And I don't know, as as I share this, I know what God kind of stirs in my heart, but the reality is the spirit of God is at work in this room and he convicts each one of us and he touches each one of us in different ways. And it could be nothing about what I said, and that's okay because God's at work in you and God is stirring something in you where you need to address that. And one of the best ways to do that is just repentance and faith. The Christian life is about repentance, which means to turn. That's all it is. It's not a negative word. It's a really positive word. To turn away from the things that are drawing our attention and just say, hey, I'm going to look back. I'm going to look back at God. And as I look at God, I'm going to see his truth, his mercy, his grace, his power, his authority, his justice. And, Father, in that place, I want you to do a work on my own soul. And for some of you, maybe you've never responded to the gospel. The gospel is the good news that through faith in Jesus Christ, his life, death, resurrection, ascension, we have a relationship with the Father. And I'd encourage you, some of you today, maybe the Spirit of God is saying, why don't you start following Christ today to accept his invitation of salvation, to say, Father, accept me through Jesus Christ and Christ alone, I know I have rejected you, I've walked away from you, I know sin is a part of my life, would you forgive me, receive me, and adopt me as your child? And maybe that's the place you need to go. So let's spend a few moments just reflecting in prayer together. In our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. Father, would you strengthen us with power so that we might walk out of here knowing our identity is rooted and is grounded in the love of Christ. And that we may be strengthened to comprehend just how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And that we would be filled with the fullness of God. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it, he gave thanks, and he said, take and eat for this is my body which is broken for you. Let us receive it together. supper he took a cup and he said this cup it represents the new covenant, the new testament that is established in my blood let us receive it together if you need to be prayed for this morning I want to invite our prayer team to come forward maybe this was a moment in which you decided to follow Christ for the first time I'd encourage you to come up to the prayer team, just let them know that they want to help you, guide you. Or if you just simply need prayer this morning, it's a great opportunity. So prayer team, would you guys come on up front and would you stand together as as we close this service